The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Beer culture is overwhelmingly white, but its history and its presence is not. A historical look at the erasure of black brewers. The impact of pandemic boredom on the economy. And a new app that will put David Attenborough in your living room to teach you about the prehistoric world. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Whether you think about craft beers, home brewing, iconic Budweiser Super Bowl commercials, or even frat parties, the image you probably conjure up is of white men. Some more bearded or fashionably dressed than the others, but generally pretty homogenous. Every fall, there's more and more jokes about IPAs just being white men's pumpkin spice lattes, the quick shorthand for white women's punitive lack of taste. But despite the overarching image of whiteness when it comes to beer, there is a vast history of black brewing culture, which, like so many things, has been largely erased from both the history books and cultural consciousness. James Bennett II dove into this for a recent piece in Eater. He acknowledges the huge influences of German and Irish culture in America, but points out that's not the only source when it comes to beer. Quoting Eater, The ancestors of African Americans, they were fermenters. They were really good at making their own liquor and making their own beers and also making wine from fruit, says the culinary historian and writer Michael W. Twitty. One of our Africanisms, in fact, was producing all of these things, and one of the reasons why we did that was because it was related to our traditional spirituality. Libation, Twitty adds, is the heart of African spiritual worship. He recounts seeing this firsthand on a trip to a Tikar village in Cameroon. They pull out a big ceramic vessel full of their traditional beer, he says, and even though a lot of Tikar are Muslim, this is one of the traditional religious practices that they keep alongside Islam. While beer drinking may be non-existent on Friday, Twitty notes, you better believe that at social functions to honor youth, celebrate a marriage, or put the deceased in the ground, alcohol is poured out and passed among the elders. End quote. Alcohol, and in many cases beer, was and is important spiritually and culturally to many different communities in Africa throughout the ages. As European colonizers began enslaving people and forcing them to work on their stolen land, the knowledge and skill sets of many enslaved black people surrounding brewing were exploited. Quoting again, The prevailing image of an enslaved black person is that of someone laboring in the fields or being ordered around the big house. But American slavery built and sustained pretty much every aspect of this American life, and that included beer. Again, the West African societies from which so many bodies were stolen were no stranger to the mechanisms of fermentation. 
We know that enslaved Africans and African Caribbeans were brewing beer or were cultivating hops or other grains that would have been used in the brewing process, says Teresa McCullough of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Black brewing skill was no secret, she adds. Advertisements for enslaved people who were skilled brewers? Absolutely. Wanted posters that identified fugitives as skilled brewers or otherwise involved in the brewing industry? As American as apple pie. Peter Hemmings, enslaved at Monticello, was a master brewer. End quote. But even if their expertise was being used to produce beer, many black individuals who were free at the time weren't drinking much of it. Part of it was because temperance got rolled into the abolitionist movement. Most abolitionists were anti-alcohol, seeing it as a toxic influence and a tool of the oppressor. Now, that's not to say that all temperance advocates were abolitionists, far from it, but most abolitionists were teetotalers. But there was also a practical angle, Bennett explains. Black people were wary of being taken advantage of by white people while drunk, and also simply didn't have the money or time for drinking while they were figuring out more important matters, like getting an education, a job, and securing a semblance of safety in a dangerous climate. Then, in the second half of the 19th century, beer and cider went from being a smaller, mostly at-home type of operation to a profitable business, largely thanks to the influence of German immigrants in America. And of course, now that it was profitable, black brewers were shut out. And being that beer was now more something to be purchased at an establishment, like a saloon, versus consumed at home, black people were also often refused service. Then, Prohibition hit. And when it was repealed, with many federal regulations in place, breweries were fearful of being shut down. So they leaned hard into patriotic branding, the kind of whitewashed, stars and stripes, apple pie type of America that is definitively white. As Bennett says, advertising has more to do with what we buy than most of us care to admit. And by his accounts, that adds up with the consumer trends that we saw throughout the second half of the 20th century. As white flight brought middle and upper middle class white people to the suburbs where they could host parties at home and had a bit of a bigger budget, a lot of them swapped beer for cocktails. And thinking that they could get them back with a beer that had as high an ABV as cocktails, beer companies tried to sell the white suburbanites on malt liquor. But the attempt flopped, most likely, Bennett supposes, because it's something of an acquired taste. So then a pivot happened. Quoting again, How did malt liquor go from garden party aspirations to boys-in-the-hood levels of despair? The exact why is a matter of lore, but J. Nichol Jackson Beckham, diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association, has a pretty good idea. The best story I've been able to get is that there was some kind of persistent market research saying that urban audiences make more purchasing decisions based on ABV and that urban audiences tend to buy for volume, she says. The decision was made to market malt liquor not as an upscale product, but a specifically urban product and to put it in a large vessel. Boom, the 40, end quote. Malt liquor proliferated for years in ads, media, and celebrity brand deals targeted at black Americans. Major beer companies hardly advertised their other products to black communities at all, but malt liquor, they went all in on. And because of the complicated associations it eventually had in black communities, some turned to finer premium spirits. But beers, writ large, still remained low on the list of picks. But what about today? 
While acknowledging that there's no one black experience, Bennett points to the relatively common tradition of cookouts in black communities and how you may bring beer, but it better be a macro brew like Heineken or Corona, not some craft beer, because that would mess with the social contract and sacred rules of the cookout, as Bennett puts it. For him and many others he's spoken with, beer and other alcoholic drinks weren't a regular presence in their parents' homes growing up, but they were brought out for special occasions hearkening back a bit to the use of beer as a spiritual rite in some African cultures. And these days, there are a ton of black brewers getting in on the craft brew game. From Fresh Fest, America's first beer festival focused on brewers of African descent, to the Harlem Brewing Company, run by Celeste Beattie, the first black woman in the country to own her own brewery. And thanks to the work of many of those brewers, the field is continuing to get more diverse. Christopher Ganzi, the owner of Daleview Biscuits and Beer, who makes brews named after black heroes and prints biographies of them on the labels, has started an internship program to train people of color as brewers and get them jobs in the industry. And history is important to a lot of these brewers, learning the history that hasn't been told and tapping into the influences of their ancestors. The Sankofa Beer Company in D.C., for example, incorporates West African fermentation, processes, styles, and ingredients into their brews. And for those of us who aren't black, I think it's good to learn these two little-told histories, to question why something, whether it's beer or anything else, is predominantly associated just with white people. What are the influences in the past that led to that? And how does or should it change our relationship to it now? Questions too big for this little podcast, but just some food, or I suppose a drink for thought. Though it is not the lived experience of everyone, the prevailing narrative for the last year has been one of boredom. Bored in the house, in the house bored. Even those who have been physically going into work somewhere have likely experienced boredom due to the fact that basically all sites of recreation and social activities have been largely closed. Can't stop thinking about a tweet I saw a while ago that I can't seem to dig up the source of, but it was someone effectively saying, I can't believe our strategy of telling people it was unsafe for them to go and spend time with friends, but safe enough to go work, hasn't panned out. And there's for sure a certain luxury to the experience of boredom, as there always has been. While some point to the invention of leisure around the 19th century in concordance with the Industrial Revolution, the truth is that leisure was only for the upper classes. That's true now, to a certain extent as well. Those working demanding jobs, or those taking on extra caregiving responsibilities, or the many people, especially women, doing both, they have not been bored during the pandemic. Far from it. But enough people have been experiencing boredom that experts are trying to figure out what it means for the economy, especially for predicting certain trends, and are coming up short because there's no modern equivalent to this phenomenon, no metric by which to study it. The New York Times suggests perhaps we need a boredom index, similar to the Consumer Confidence Index, which gauges optimism about the future, among other things. Because it's true, for those who can, one big result of being so bored is increased spending. Especially, Marshall Cohen, the chief retail analyst at the NPD Group, says, spending on the home, and more specifically on home improvement, things that can both keep us busy and can change up our space. From May to November, 81% of Americans bought home improvement items, according to the NPD Group. 
But to understand consumer behavior, you have to understand the psychology of consumers. Quoting the New York Times, Boredom is often a signal that something does not feel meaningful, said Aaron Westgate, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Florida who studies boredom. Emotions act as these quick, automatic signals that provide feedback for what we're doing, she said. In boredom's case, it's a way that our body and mind are alerting us that something is wrong. The pandemic, however, limited what we can do to make things feel right, end quote. And Westgate adds that boredom can increase behaviors like novelty-seeking, risk-taking, and our sensitivity to rewards, which is all good news for the economy, especially as Westgate says it can make us more impulsive and see less cons in our decision-making. It's not all exactly impulsive, though. We sometimes make decisions in order to fend off future boredom. So buying a bunch of ingredients and utensils to bake bread, or a bunch of gardening gear, or puzzles. But while there's been a boost in purchasing of some types of self-care items, and a 60% bump in purchases of loaf pans, there's also been an increase in alcohol purchases and other items reflective of some self-destructive behaviors. And there's another interesting economic impact for people working from home, a possible dip in productivity due to our boredom occurring at a different time of day. Because we don't have a morning commute during which to be bored and let our mind wander, now our mind might veer off into daydreaming or worrying when we're supposed to be working. But just because it's happening when we're technically supposed to be working doesn't mean that it can't still have net positive benefits. That boredom-induced mind-wandering is great for creativity, so maybe we'll see a long-term boost in creative, innovative ideas among individuals and businesses. With a little more than half of the nation reporting last May that they felt more bored during the pandemic than before, a number that has surely risen, it may remain to be seen if there are any long-lasting effects on the economy or more largely on society as a result of this sustained boredom among a limited but substantial chunk of the population. Well, speaking of boredom, here's something that could entertain you for a bit. There's a new app out from Alchemy Immersive that will let you explore the prehistoric world in your living room with David Attenborough. It's an AR-based app called Museum Alive, so the idea is that it kind of recreates a museum for you at home. With this particular exhibit focusing on extinct creatures and the Earth as it appeared millions of years ago. It is a super well-designed app, aesthetically speaking, super clean, with gorgeous, accurate renderings of the flora and fauna. And as you explore going between interactive fact sheets and AR dioramas, you're guided by David Attenborough, both as a narrator and incorporating some video clips from throughout his career. Looks like an incredible app for families if you've got kids doing school at home, but it's designed for all ages, and I can confirm that it is just as fun for us adults. But if you don't want to spend the three bucks on it just yet, did you know that if you Google basic animals on your phone, there is an option in the Google card to tap view in 3D, and then using AR, you can plop a life-size representation of the animal into your room? I discovered this on accident a while back, and it turns out it works for a number of animals, objects, and cultural heritage sites. Everything from penguins to the digestive system to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. 
Not really sure what qualifies something to make the list, but it's free to try out on your phone. No David Attenborough on this one, though. You'll just have to do his voice yourself. So we've got our first video and audio of Mars from the Perseverance rover. The high-quality video of the landing is pretty fascinating to watch, but as exciting as the audio is to have, it's a bit less so to listen to. It's basically just wind, but still, I got a bit of a chill listening to it knowing that it was sounds from Mars. A few other minor bits of news to shout out at the end here. Hillary Clinton is working on a novel in collaboration with author Louise Penny, a political thriller, to be precise, starring the Secretary of State of an America that is no longer a player on the world stage. You might recall that Bill Clinton also published his first novel, also a political thriller, three years ago in collaboration with James Patterson. A lot of political thriller reading going on in the Clinton house, it seems. And Dunkin' Donuts is debuting a matcha donut, a glazed donut with a green matcha powder on top, as well as a blueberry matcha latte, which is described as, quote, combining Dunkin's sweetened matcha green tea powder blend with blueberry flavor and our guest choice of milk, end quote, which, you know, considering how rarely blueberry flavored products are actually made of blueberries, this is basically just going to be a purple tinted green tea latte. But at the very least, this news gives me an excuse to bring up the unfortunately well-documented, regularly recurring instances of Ben Affleck trying and just about failing to carry too many Dunkin' Donuts coffees at once. An unintentional meme that speaks to me on a deep core level. In any case, links to all of this from Mars to Affleck are in the show notes if you want to peruse further. And as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.